Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. Today is February 12, and our chapter reading for today is Exodus 32. Now, before we get to Exodus 32, we have covered a lot of ground since our reading yesterday of Exodus chapter 20 and the Decalogue. In chapters 21 through 31, God gives a series of laws to Moses, categories of laws, while he is 40 days on the mountain with God. Now think about that, 40 days on a mountain with God. God came down, Moses went up, and they met, and God spoke to him, wrote with his very finger on stone. All of these things were happening, and as this was happening, so were some things happening on the ground with Aaron. And we'll get into those in just a moment. But first, I want you to understand just what was going on, because sometimes as we read through the narrative of Scripture, God, as you know, will have a storyline here and then another storyline that is going on simultaneously. This is what's happening. And so God is giving us the account of him being on the mountain with Moses and what he's giving Moses there. And then we get a glimpse in the chapters coming, for instance, chapter 32, our reading for today, on what was going on on the ground below the mountain. But Moses is there, and God gives him seven different various categories. Not all get the same equal weight, but he gives seven categories and ends up reminding Moses about Shabbat, just like creation. Six categories, and then the category of itself of Shabbat. God is really into the seventh day. And you and I need to be into it simply because there is no argument between what is the day for the believer, whether it is the seventh day or the first day. The answer is yes. We must have a day when we honor God as the creator. We should do that on Shabbat. That doesn't mean we have to have our worship services there or we have to become Jewish. Many times when people understand that I am in Israel as much as I am and I teach about our Hebraic, Judaic roots of Christianity and I talk about everything from a historical, geographical, linguistic, cultural standpoint, then many times as I'm teaching that context, people have seen the extremes of this and they think, okay, he's trying to make us Jews. Absolutely not. What I'm trying to do is help you to understand that the Bible is a Jewish book. It is written by Jews to Jews, primarily for Jews. And if we don't understand that, we're not going to properly understand the Word of God because it is a Jewish book and it's written from a Jewish perspective. And God is not finished with the Jews. He's not replaced Israel with the church. That's heresy. It's not only wrong, it's heresy. It's a deviation from truth. And 
and it's an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, and I have no patience with it whatsoever. Many of my friends over the years have believed that. All millennial eschatology people usually believe that because they believe that the book of Revelation is just an allegory or something that has already been realized 2,000 years ago. I don't believe that, and I don't believe it fits in the parameters of good hermeneutics and a method of discovering truth. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't love these people and I don't get along with them because I do. Some of my dearest friends down through the years have been reformed in their belief system about salvation, and we have so much in common because they take the Bible historically and literally. But then when it comes to eschatology and the relationship between Israel and the church after the resurrection of Jesus, it just seems like they go berserk. I don't know what happens. They would say the same thing about me, and that's okay. Good men can differ, and I hope that that's the case. But I want you to understand that you don't have to choose between Shabbat or the first day of the week. The early disciples who were Jewish, they worshiped on both days. From the pattern of Scripture, we can see that. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. That doesn't mean that you have to throw out the baby with the bathwater and go from one extreme to another. I try to take Saturdays, what we call Call Saturdays as Shabbat as a day to get myself together, to recognize it's the end of the week, that God has blessed me, be thankful for everything, get ready for the first day of the week when we worship the Lord and start the week with Him celebrating the fact that Jesus has died for our sins, God has accepted His sacrifice, He raised Him from the dead, and He's coming back again, and you and I have the greatest opportunity to live in the greatest time that there's ever been on earth to love God with all of our hearts, show the love of God to a perverse and wicked generation, and we need to be about doing that. So Moses was on the mountain with God, and God gave him these things, and one of the things that he gave him was the schematic, or the blueprint, if you will, for the tabernacle. Now, it's interesting in chapter 25, when God gives the outline and the schematic for this tabernacle, or the ten of meeting, it's interesting that the tent of meeting, the word meeting there is the word moed. That is the place where God meets us. The time that God sets to meet us. That is the same moed that is used to talk about the days, the appointed times of Shabbat, the appointed time of Passover, of unleavened bread, of first fruits, of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks we call Pentecost, of Yom the blowing of the trumpet, what we call Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, and then the 10 days of reflection and fasting, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and then Sukkot or tabernacles. All of those are Moedim. They are appointed times on God's calendar when he says, I want to meet with you. Well, the tent of meeting is the tent of Moed. It's the tent of appointment. It's the time where God said and the place where God said, I want to meet with you. It's fascinating to me that God wants to meet with us, and he's prepared a way for us to do that. And in chapter 25, you'll notice that when God gives this schematic, he starts with the ark, the chest, where the 
tablets would be placed, and later Aaron's rod that budded and a golden pot of manna would be placed in this little chest. A chest, an ark is a chest, is just a small chest and had a lid on it, and the lid was called the mercy seat. That's the way we translate it in English. It's the kippur, it's the kippuret, it's the covering, and we call it the mercy seat because that's where God meets with us and shows us mercy. We'll get into that more in the podcasts that lie ahead, but it's very important that we understand that God designed all of this and he started with the pieces that we would look at at being behind the veil or the Holy of Holies. And then he made his way out with the altar of incense, with the table of showbread, with the golden lampstand, the menorah again, which deals with creation and represents the seven days of creation. Then you have the laver and then the wash basin, as it is called. That's lavatory. That's where we get that laver. It's called in the King James Version. Well, that's lavatory. That's the wash basin. And uh, then there was the brazen altar. I would love to spend time talking with you about three weeks on just the temple's and the tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temples. And I'm putting together something that will be available to you soon in one of the classes of Bible Time Classroom, where I'll teach for an entire course on the tabernacles, the worship centers of Israel, the tabernacle, and then the first and second temple, and the temple that is to come, maybe more than one that is to come. But for now, we have to look at what God was doing. Now, it's interesting when you study the tabernacle, God always starts with where he is in the Holy of Holies. But we don't teach it like that. No man I've ever heard teaches it like that. And the reason is we can't teach it like that. Yes, God starts with himself, but we cannot start where God is. So we have to go outside the gate because that's where we find ourselves. And we have to come to the gate through the only gate, the straight gate, the one gate, the only way. There's not many ways into the Holy of Holies there's one way you've got to come God's way or he said if you try to come any other way you're a thief and a robber and God will kill you I mean you know you might say well ha, 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 I can't believe you said that God will kill somebody well God killed a lot of people and he's going to kill a lot of people in the future and the reason is is because God is who he said he is he is God almighty he's the creator you can't come to him any way you want to and you don't get a vote on that I don't either God said this is the way, walk in it. And so we have to come through the straight gate. It's a narrow gate, and only a few are going to find it on a relative scale and that are going to accept the great grace and gift and generosity of God in giving us salvation. We come in, and we have to immediately be confronted with sacrifice, with blood, with atonement. That's where we start, and then we have to wash from the defilement of sin. Then we go into the holy place and fellowship with God, and then the Holy of Holies where forgiveness is exercised, and you and I receive the forgiveness and the atonement. But all I'm saying to you is this, God, uh, when he gave Moses the pattern and the design, you might want to read sometime when you get an opportunity, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews is the most Old Testament of the New Testament books. It's the one that was written specifically to the Jewish people, to the Hebrews, as it's called. And it is a fascinating book, but you, unless you understand something of the tabernacle and temple and the worship centers and the the pieces of furniture and elements of worship.
worship and the priest and the garments of the priest and the uh, duties of the priest, you're not going to understand very much about Hebrews. And so I want to encourage you when you have time to read, especially Hebrews chapter 9 about the tabernacle. And then chapter 10, where it talks about that the blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible that they take away sin. You see, all of the rituals that God gave to Moses, including the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle and it being the center of everything, the blood of bulls and goats and rams and lambs could never take away sin. An animal cannot die for a man and pay for his sin. No, that was only a token. It was an act of faith looking forward to the day when God would fulfill his promise and send Messiah to die in our place. And that's what Jesus did. He came and he lived a perfect life. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. That means he always thought what he should have thought just when he should have thought it, said what he should have said just when he should have said it in the way he should have said it. He always did what he should have done just when he should have done it the way he should have done it. He never thought anything he shouldn't have thought. He never said anything he shouldn't have said. And he never did anything that he shouldn't have done. He was absolutely perfect. He would have never had to die the way of sin is death. But the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, why can he give us eternal life? Because he died to pay the penalty for our sins. And God received his sacrifice, raised him from the dead to show that indeed the sacrifice had been accepted. And he declared him to be the son of God. Now, he was the son of God before that time. But God wanted the entire universe to know that he was pleased with his son's sacrifice. And therefore, Jesus lives to turn around and give us the gift of eternal life, not only forgiveness of our sins and all that we've ever done, all that we will ever do. That's right. He's forgiven us of everything, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, written by a Jewish rabbi under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is right now no judgment, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God paid the penalty for our sins. All that we have done, all that we'll ever do. You say, wait just a minute. You mean he's already paid for what sins that I haven't committed? Well, of course he has. How many had you committed when he died on the cross? None, but he died to pay for them. Not only that, but... If God just forgave us of all that we've done up until the time we were saved, before we got home or lived another day, we'd already be messed up again. No, God paid the penalty for our sins once and for all. And he gives us his righteousness, the righteousness that he earned in obedience to God. He puts that on our account. We are reckoned the righteousness of Jesus. We're robed in him. This is why, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you can never go to heaven by mitzvot. You cannot keep enough laws. You cannot do a good thing enough. No, that's not the way you please God. Without faith, without trust, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. It's by faith that Abraham was saved. It's by faith that Isaac was saved. It's by faith that Jacob was saved. It's by faith that David was saved. Never by their good works. Never by keeping the law. If there was a law that was given that could have given us eternal life, God would have done it. And so when you read through these chapters, you're going to see a lot. Now, what about chapter 32? That's our reading for today. Well, that's the story of the golden calf. Now, why is the golden calf so important? Number one, what a disappointment Aaron was. 
And oftentimes pastors will say to me, well, you know, I left and I thought that staff, I thought they had really caught it. I thought they had gotten it. But as soon as I got out of sight, out of sight is out of mind. And they went right back to doing what they were doing. You know why? Because it's got to get in a person's heart, every person's heart. The Apostle Paul, after he left Corinth, I mean, he was there 18 months. Only at Ephesus was he there longer, and they fell apart after he left. Don't be so concerned about what happens after you leave. Really take care of what's going on while you're there. That's the main thing. And God will take care of the rest. And if we would do that with our children, with our families, quit worrying about what's going to happen when you leave. Be all God wants you to be right now. That's the big thing. And the Lord will take care of the rest because everybody's going to make their decisions no matter what after you leave or you leave this world. And so Aaron was a big disappointment. What a an answer he gave. Uh, what are you doing, Aaron? Well, I just, uh, you know, put a bunch of gold in the fire and out came this calf. I mean, you just want to say, could you not do just a little bit better than that? That was the sorriest excuse I ever heard in my life. And I'm sure that's what Moses did. And, you know, God wanted to just wipe them all out. And Moses, in his love for his people, his love for his brother, his love for his family, and the love for God, most of all, he said, God, please don't wipe these people out. If you do, this is what the Egyptians and the Canaanites want. Now, why was the calf so bad? Because it represented one of the chief gods of fertility and one of the chief gods of strength that they had just come from, from the Egyptians. But not only that, but it represented the same thing in the Canaanite religion that they were going into. You see, that golden calf was a reminder of what they had come out of and what they were going to have to fight in the future. You see, what God was doing was giving them a test, and they failed miserably. And Moses passed the test because, you see, he didn't say, okay, God, go ahead and wipe them out. I'm kind of sick of them, too. Let's start new again. No. You know what he did? He said, God, please have mercy on them. And at one point later, you'll see, he more than once said, God, if you have to destroy somebody, just go ahead and take my life. That's how much he loved God, God's honor, and that's how much he loved the people. The golden calf is a shaming incident in the life of the children of Israel. But do you know God, who is rich in mercy, forgave them and taught them many lessons through this? Just like I have been talking with many, even today, I talked with several of the folks that are in the church that I pastor, and I talked with a couple of the elders as we were talking back and forth. We talked about how God sets up these memorials to remind us of where he's brought us from and how easy it is for us to slip back in to the vice of doing what we've always done the way that we've always done it. And that's usually a bad way. And I pray that God will take this reading that you're doing, especially in chapter 32, and remind you that it doesn't matter how many miracles you've seen, how much you've walked with God, what you've experienced with God. Listen, there is no seniority with God. And you are not but a heartbeat away from turning away from God outside of His grace. Let's walk on the way. For On the Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at TonyCrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCRISP.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.